Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Paul Harvey of Radio Fame was known to end his broadcast with the phrase, and now you know the rest of the story. In so doing, he provided a cap on the inside scoop or the untold story that he had just revealed throughout the course of his show before he bid his listeners his iconic good day. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. How can something be both a balm and a woe? Can studying the things rejected by men actually be of great benefit? This summer, we introduced the Wittenberg Hour listeners to Richard M. Weaver. And today, we would like to share more specifically how Richard M. Weaver fits into Wittenberg Academy's rhetoric sequence and, perhaps even more specifically, how it prepares scholars for, in the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, the long defeat. In the first part of this episode, Dr. Jim Tolman joins us to discuss how those things that are despised and rejected by men, especially in the academic world, can be the most priceless and enduring. In the second part of this episode, Dr. Tolman will invite us to his annual Reflecting on Rhetoric over Rioja. Dr. Tolman, welcome back to the Wittenberg Hour. Thank you, Jocelyn. It's a pleasure and good morning. The academic year is in full swing, and your Rhetoric One scholars are engaging right now as we speak. Well, maybe right now they're sleeping. Uh, right now as we speak in Richard M. Weaver's The Cultural Role of Rhetoric. They're in between major assignments. There are two uh, coupled 200-point assignments in rhetoric, and there's a month that separates them because I want the second one to be their magnum opus. And so I've taken to providing them a diversion in the meantime where we study some rhetorical theory. I like to think of the class as kind of a smorgasbord of rhetorical studies that exposes them to the primary threads and sub-disciplines within rhetorical studies. And uh, my primary interests lie in rhetorical theory. <clears throat> and so having them read, I find Richard Weaver to be really useful and really accessible for them. And so we talk about the cultural role of rhetoric, and then we read some excerpts from the Phaedrus by Plato. And then Weaver has a crackerjack essay called The Phaedrus and the Nature of Rhetoric. So it's a nice package that, like I say, allows them some time to think deep thoughts about rhetorical arts and cast it in their minds in a way that goes deeper than just effective, persuasive speaking, you know, and learning how to debate and that sort of thing. So I think that's useful while they're doing research and tweaking the arguments in their persuasive speech, which is the second assignment. And it introduces them, like I said, to the cultural role of rhetoric, the ethics of rhetoric, 
and the dynamic between dialectic and rhetoric in cultivating wisdom and eloquence in students. So they get all of that good out of discussing those two Weaver essays and those excerpts from Plato's Phaedrus. How do you find the scholars interact with and respond to Richard M. Weaver? Well, you know, we had a great podcast and we kept returning to that, how over time, I mean, I've been in academia for 30 years and I've been teaching Richard Weaver virtually the whole time and uh, students universally find him very relevant as you did. It was the motivation behind that series of podcasts that you you see in Richard Weaver a lot of relevance because he had a tendency to ponder the root of things and the enduring ideas. And so he's really perfect for what we're trying to attempt here at Wittenberg. But I'm in the throes of that discussion with my students right now. And per usual, they're responding very well. They're getting a lot out of what he has to say. They're intrigued very much with how the role of rhetoric in a free society is expressed so profoundly in Richard Weaver's writings. And I think they're showing signs that they find him interesting, intriguing, relevant, and will likely follow up with him. What specifically do you find your scholars hitting on? Or what do you find strikes them especially in the context in which they find themselves today. Why does Weber resonate right now? Think back now how you were reacting yourself to Richard Weaver's writings. You said at least five times to me in our podcast series, I'm highlighting everything and then I have to underline because I'm highlighting everything. Everybody picks something different because Weaver, like G.K. Chesterton, like uh, Nietzsche, like so many really great thinkers, comments on such an array of really relevant cultural phenomena that you could you could take him any any number of ways. Now I'm very focused in my rhetoric one and Rhetoric three classes for Wittenberg Academy in what I expect my students to glean from Richard Weaver's writings. I only assign two essays, and I think I have a third that I assign in um, Rhetoric three. I'm, I'm not in that mode right now, so I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but uh, I, I do have a smattering of Richard Weaver readings, and I always encourage them to read on their own because I have 10 of those essays word processed and posted at the rhetoricring.com in my little tribute to Weaver area. So I call it Weaver's top 10. But anyway, I always encourage them to read more. But what I try to focus on with them is, as I said, first of all, I want to elevate the enterprise, I call it. That's my little tag for getting them to consider that Rhetoric is important beyond just learning how to be an effective speaker. I think that's the extent a lot of people take 
their understanding, their, their grappling with rhetoric is, uh, okay, this is going to teach me how to take the truth that logic gives and make it more eloquent. But when you get into the theoretical underpinnings of how rhetoric provides a vehicle for orderly change in society and how important persuasive discourse is in a free society where you choose not to effect change by means of coercion, but rather by persuasion. Hmm? And when you consider how rhetoric in its deeper influence in society is a means of cultivating and preserving cultural cohesion, that speaks to the relevance today because we see evidence that we're unraveling all around us. Am I right? Absolutely. I think all of my students latch on to that and it's a good thing. So that elevates the enterprise so that partly while they're ramping up to do their magnum opus in my class, which is a persuasive speech. And then it, by the way, in rhetoric three, the magnum opus is supposed to be uh, an original oration at any rate. And, and they just do tremendous work as a rule there. Well, partly that's because they're attempting to operate as a doctor of culture to diagnose societal ills and prescribe cures. And they get that through the study of Richard. That's what I do in rhetoric three that I think is big news for the students is tips from Richard Weaver on acting as a doctor of culture, basically to serve humanity by helping, helping remind us that, Hey, we're better than this. Here's the best version of who we are. So those sorts of things are what they glean from Richard Weaver and it's good, right, and salutary. And it's frankly, I think you can see how really relevant that is to the whole Lutheran dialogue on vocation and love of neighbor. So rhetoric becomes in a large extent, um, speaking the truth and love to my neighbor and equipment for carrying out one's vocations with a plum. We've seen, and we continue to see, you continue to see each time you have a new group of scholars, what I might call the Weaver effect, right? We could call it the Tallman effect, uh, but, but for our purposes today, we'll call it the Weaver effect in that all of a sudden scholars are considering things in ways they hadn't considered them prior you are giving them in your rhetoric sequence this gift of being able to consider things in ways they hadn't previously considered them. How is the world going to respond to these scholars who are thinking of things in Weaverian ways? not only Weaverian ways, but in Lutheran ways and in Christian ways and in conservative ways, in 
ways that are considered out of step with postmodernity, with academia, with social construction of thought. For goodness sake, we catechize our students in the, this is most certainly true. You couldn't be any more out of step with trends in academia. And by the way, I don't want us to deceive ourselves into thinking that all the Concordias are a safe haven um, from that sort of thought. They are not. They're working on it. We know we're very mindful in the, in the classical Lutheran education movement that there's a battle for the Concordias and it's, it's not pleasant, but it's something we engage in and it's something we're confronted with. And it's a battle that is spiritual in nature and we're engaged in it and we rely on God's grace to be effectual in that regard. And I'm not saying this to demean the Concordias and paint with broad strokes, but there are just some people who get what we're doing and some people who don't get what we're doing. And we think what we're doing is congruent with a Lutheran approach to education. It's the approach that Luther, Melanchthon, Bugenhagen and company advocated. And so there's this same sort of struggle in the Concordias. And here's the bottom line, just to put a fine edge on this. I had a tremendous live chat with my students the other day. I checked with some of them afterward, which I tend to do. And yes, they, they got a lot out of it. And I know that there is going to be an abiding interest in Richard Weaver uh, amongst this crop of Wittenberg Academy students, just like previous ones. And frankly, that concerns me because we are driven to prepare our students for success in college. But if through the orientation that we strive with all our might to cultivate within our students, they are going to become targets when they go into academia, virtually wherever they go into academia, it's that prevalent now. Um, we somehow have to simultaneously equip them for success in college and warn them that it's not going to be a piece of cake. They are going to be targets. They are going to experience some degree of persecution. I used to actually be the guy that would say, you know, it's not as bad as it seems. There's a conservative cadre of teachers. This was when the um, generation that grew up in the Reagan era was, was growing up. I get what Gen X, when Gen X was entering academia, I was still hopeful that, okay, the radicals will die off and they'll be replaced with people who have a tendency to come up behind them and clean up all the messes they made. And, you know, you know, we've had that discussion before. I used to encourage people 
to hold a more optimistic view of things. I really have abandoned that, frankly. Now, it's it's bad and it's evidenced by all of the young snowflakes that are out um ripping up our inner cities and our, you know, the, the Democrat controlled cities, if I can put a political spin on it, but it's true. It's, it's quantitative or qualitative, quantitatively true that that's where a lot of this is going on. The cities that have historically been run by, by left wingers, not just Democrats, but the left wing of the democratic party. So anyway, uh, that the rest of the story is I just, I had a sense of foreboding and I actually went onto a forum and said, Hey, just so we're clear, I want you to be enthusiastic about what Richard Weaver contributes to your understanding of these matters. And I intend fully for him to influence your thought processes in a positive way. And I'm linking it consciously to your Lutheran faith because the congruence is so strong. But in one regard, I'm not doing you any favors and I don't want you to be unaware. I respect very much where I'm at when I'm working within a secular university context. And I'm not a rabble rouser. It may surprise you to realize that about me, but I'm very direct in this context because I know to whom I'm speaking. But when I'm in an academic environment in a secular university like South Dakota State University, I really try to just get along and not uh, push my points of view and that sort of thing and and look for, look for uh, fights, pick fights with people. And so back to the students, I, I want them to realize that there's very little tolerance for anything Richard Weaver has to say about anything. This isn't unique to rhetoric. And it's even in a larger sense, this isn't unique to college right it doesn't matter if our if our scholars go to college or if they engage in civic life or if they engage you know sometimes with their own extended families wherever god calls them to be they're going to experience persecution they are going to experience frustration at the abject denial of truth, you know, all of the things that we uphold in all of the areas of study at Wittenberg Academy, rhetoric certainly being a capstone and a fundamental piece of, of the course of, of study. And so in providing them this opportunity to engage with Weaver, and we've talked about this before, the fact that, and I've said this multiple times, the fact that Weaver could have written what he wrote when he wrote it, he could have written it today because it seems to apply so well yeah. today. You know, it's it's one of those mm -hmm. timeless things 
and it's at the same time very eye-opening. It it helps you think and ponder in in new perhaps more complex, perhaps more more clear ways. And at the same time, it's kind of like that drink of water in the desert, right? Insofar as you go, oh, I'm not the only one who thinks like this. I'm I'm not yeah. alone. That makes Wittenberg Academy an oasis. Lord willing. Your point is well taken, Jocelyn. Uh, you just did a great little podcast with uh, Pastor Broughton. He teaches logic at Wittenberg Academy. The logic approach that we take is also really out of step with the whole social constructionist viewpoint on, on truth. And because our approach, not surprisingly, focuses on this is most certainly true on uh, the, the need for absolutes in your, in your worldview and those sorts of things. And goodness gracious, just about everything we teach, you know, when you hold, and again, this is not news to anyone. This is the standard saw that we get across the spectrum today, uh, the spectrum of societal dialogue that our, our very viewpoint is has been defined as hate speech if you uphold the sanctity of life and marriage as a holy covenant between a man and a woman and you know the traditional view of the nuclear family across the board you know Beverly Yonke comes to mind she's done yeoman work on gender dysphoria and if the representative from Hawaii thinks Amy Coney Barrett was was using hateful language when she said sexual preference because of the implications of that, oh my goodness, if she ever got a hold of Beverly Yonke um, trying to make the argument for the problems of young, impressionable teens and preteens being pressured into... Uh, a situation where they have extreme gender dysphoria through societal pressures. Um, all of those things just make us targets, not just in academia. You're absolutely right. And so we're living what Christ said. In the world, you shall have tribulation. And if we don't every once in a while remind our students of that, I think we do them a disservice. And I guess that's the whole reason I pretty much called for this because I was hoping we would have something that our students could listen to in perpetuity that would be a good wake-up call, more or less. But I love the way you responded, which is a tendency to when we talk. I have a tendency, which is really odd for me because I'm kind of an optimistic person. But when it comes to cultural critique, I do tend to dwell on the negatives. 
And so I get into a law mode and you always bring the refreshing bomb of the gospel. And I appreciate that. And there is the rest of the story to the rest of the story, if I can put it that way. I'm being silly. I'm a rhetorician. Sometimes we do. We string together things like that. No, and that's fantastic. And I love the fact that you brought up when Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble because it models so perfectly exactly what we're talking about, that that Jesus tells us we're going to have trouble, but he doesn't stop there. <laughs> he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Just yeah. like these these things that we're providing for our scholars and and helping our scholars to engage in these rejected ideas, you know, things like truth. <laughs> you know, truth yeah. has been rejected. And so if we're engaging them in the fact that there is absolute truth, then we are giving them rejected ideas. We are giving them rejected reality. And so in Jesus' model there that, yes, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This gives us the model for the fact that these things that are rejected by men, whether it be scripture or Richard Weaver or the catechism, or whatever the case may be, whether it be marriage between one man and one woman. You think of all the myriad things that are given us as gifts that our world has rejected. These not only equip our scholars to endure to life eternal, right? This truth that we're giving them. But at the same time, they are the thing that simultaneously refreshes them. These things equip them, the truth equips them, and it refreshes them for the journey of persecution. The way of the cross. We're, We're preparing our students for a glorious existence in Christ, appropriating the riches that he gives and the wisdom that he gives and the life of service, but we also simultaneously equip them to live the life of the cross. And this is a very valuable Lutheran insight. And I hope that it's one that this podcast can underscore not only for our students, but for everyone, that while it's true, we are an affront to the world just walking around. I maintain that I don't go around picking fights with people. I try to be a loving Christian presence in this world and a peacemaker. But I don't like to play the games that are currently so popular with people whom I consider to have reprobate minds or referring to Romans one. And so they're, 
to a large extent, they're calling the shots now. And there are people who, for the life of me, I don't understand what motivates them, except that they're just addicted to grand social experiments. And so they try to dictate uh, kind of the whole reinventing of America, which I think is a tremendous time-tested free society that is a beacon in the world. And, uh, you know, all of the people that you're hearing now warning us not to go down the path that they came here to escape, right, from all of these communist countries and stuff like that. And I'm not trying to pit this in political terms. I'm trying to stay on a spiritual uh, plane here. But there, those are the, that's kind of the, the falling out of the implications of where all that leads in a free society, you start to lose your freedoms. And we do after all pray for a peaceable orderly existence. Right. And so Absolutely. it's hard to not make a political statement every once in a while, but this is not primarily a political consideration that we're, that we're engaged in here. And it's important to remember the rest of the story as I keep alluding to that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe. And we do have the answer to the sting and the pain and the deflation that comes through walking through that valley of tears day in and day out. That is the way of the cross. And it is that he will provide, he is good, and at the end of the day, literally, when our day ends, we will walk into the eternal life and the banquet that he's prepared for us, and this will all be a faint memory. And so if we do our job well, which I pray God we're doing now. If we do our job well, our students will both have their eyes wide open. They will have their enthusiastic embracing of some enduring truths that will serve them well in their personal lives, in their vocations, and in their faith life. But they will also have that serpent-like skepticism and reserve and thoughtfulness that will keep them from becoming disillusioned once they experience some persecution because they know from whence they draw their strength. The truth, the truth will always be a stumbling block to the perishing. Jesus didn't set us up for daisies and roses, right? You know, he set us up for reality and the truth. He did, absolutely. We're set up for roses because roses have lots of thorns. But well, this is true. This is also true. They're both and. Right, right. Well, and, and we live everything we're talking about here is that both and there will be persecution. Here are the tools to receive that 
persecution gracefully. Yes, I just had an epiphany. But if you're forewarned, you put your gloves on before you grab that rose and you're careful how you handle it. And you're not naive about how beautiful and rosy roses are. Yeah, absolutely. The 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 preparation piece is so essential before going to the task that one has been given. Right? And our yeah. scholars have all been given a task. There's a wonderful prayer, and I usually include this in graduation cards. There's a, a beautiful prayer in our hymnal that talks about uh, the fact that, that we might not know what lies before us on the road that God has given us to travel. But the one thing that we do know is that God is there, right? So, yeah. so we might not know everything that's coming up, but we, but we prepare our scholars for whatever will come at them, right? And our scholars have very diverse callings in life, both now and in the future, Yet we, we prepare them with the truth that provides that umbrella no matter what calling they have in front of them. And so with that, we, we prepare them for a life of, of persecution. We, we prepare them, you know, we open their eyes to the reality of the devil, the world, and their sinful nature, which are constantly warring against them. But at the same time, when we open their eyes, we also direct their focus, right? So it's not just, wow, things are really bad, <laughs> you know? It's yeah. things are really bad, but, you know, just like Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes. The world is very evil, but. Here is your strength. Here is yeah. the rock to which you cling. You know, take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, though these all be gone. Our victory has been won, right? So you have that, uh, you have that contrast, and we live that tension constantly. And so I think that giving them tools like, Richard M. Weaver, allow them to have a focus and a drive and a support even as they go with open eyes into a world that is against the truth, that hates the truth. Yes. And I, I pray that, you know, our conversation today will contribute to that both in terms of opening the eyes and directing the gaze toward Christ, who is our life, and the cross. And it will 
breed in our students a deep and abiding reliance upon Christ who has prepared us for good works that we may walk in them. And part of walking in them is avoiding the thorns, the byways, and the pitfalls. When I first found out that Quintilian was a contemporary of Paul's 20 years ago, probably in graduate school, I got really excited thinking about what if Paul actually did go to Spain and he bumped into Quintilian because Quintilian was brought up in Spain and then moved to Rome to go to school and then eventually to um, assist Galba when he took over after Nero's death. Um, Quintilian was the first paid teacher in the Roman Empire and he taught rhetoric to the children of the leadership and he was really highly regarded and then of course he wrote the 12-volume Institutes of Oratory, which is considered a classic both in pedagogy and in rhetorical studies. So Quintilian's a significant figure. He would have been a young man just coming up through the ranks of legal pleading in the regional courts in Hispania about the time Paul was concluding his walk on this earth and about to pour himself out as a drink offering. So I, I thought, you know, Paul always threatened to go to Spain. What if he actually did get some sort of reprieve and while he was there, he bumps into Quintilian? I would have to think they would really hit it off because Paul was a Hellene. He was classically educated and so was Quintilian, obviously. So I wrote the novel after thinking it through and talking it through and researching for 15 years. I finally got to a position when I moved from Wyoming to Texas to eke out some time to write every day. And it was a most pleasant experience. And I wrote Of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja as a a little historical novel about Paul meeting Quintilian and then riding up the Iberus River in Hispania Terraconensis to Caliguras, which is where Quintilian was raised on a family plantation there. And uh, I have them in a platonic dialogue format talking about rhetoric and the ethics of rhetoric and the gospel and all kinds of great things and so I wrote up this novel to essentially capture all of the important elements in the cultural role of rhetoric and 
the ethics of rhetoric and the relationship between dialectic and ethics and rhetoric and the gospel and the book is sandwiched with crises that are documented that happened in Quintilian's life in older age and I have him reflecting back on his time with Paul which would have been some of the most momentous conversations he had ever had in his life in his very interesting and long life looking back at the end of his life after he had lost his young wife in childbirth lost that child and then five years later lost his namesake uh, and he was in a deep crisis and I have him considering the redemptive words of Paul planted in his soul low many years back so that's kind of the sketch of the book and I use it in my teaching at Wittenberg Academy and the students really enjoy it and the reason I use it in my teaching is it imparts in a fictional way in an interesting way in an imaginative way all of the threads of rhetorical theory that I aspire to teach my students. Through the good graces of Wittenberg Academy, I've established an annual reading that's the equivalent of a wine and cheese event virtually uh, presented through the auspices of Wittenberg Academy that I like to call reflecting on rhetoric over Rioja because of course Rioja wine is a phenomenal wine that's related genetically to Burgundy and also I just thought it'd be nice to have something around Reformation time that would be an annual event just to spend an hour talking about themes in the book for anyone who's interested in learning a little bit more about rhetoric and talking about it. So this year's 2020's Reflecting on Rhetoric over Rioja will take place. It's going to be the 29th of October, that's a Thursday evening, and I would like to do it at 8 p.m. Central Time. I think that will cover the time zones fairly well. And we're just going to talk for an hour. Uh, the deal is you're supposed to have some Rioja wine on hand, and it's an adult level kind of discussion and we're it's supposed to be informal and i do try to gauge once i find out who will be in attendance i try to gauge what their level of interest is in whichever thread of the book they would like to discuss and then we pursue that in the beginning and then open it up for uh, passages that people are interested in or any need for clarification that they may have or points of interest that they would like to get off the tour bus and have a little excursion. We'll certainly include 
links to be able to purchase your book prior to this wine and cheese event with the with the wine and and cheese both being provided by attendees as as this is a virtual event bring your own wine and cheese to your computer it will be great i have to disclose jocelyn that when my book was first published i was so pleased i spent a good many hours at this little coffee shop that's attached to a restaurant a nice bistro in austin texas and so i went to them and i said i'd like to get some rioja wine and a meat and cheese plate they had this wonderful plank that they served that actually worked its way into my book it inspired me for what possibly uh, quintilian and paul might have enjoyed while they were on the veranda at the quintilian homestead and uh so i had all of this set up and i had a big stack of my books and my daughter and son-in-law came we had a nice little time and that was about it (laughs) so i'm still trying to have those wine and cheese events somehow so thank you very much for helping make that happen absolutely absolutely uh we definitely encourage our listeners to join in the discussion and have uh, an enjoyable, relaxing evening, uh, reflecting on rhetoric over Rioja. Before we close, just to encourage our listeners, especially if they are uh, no longer in high school and potentially no longer uh, engaged in formal learning, why are discussions like this important? intellectual community. We labor intensively. We have a mission. We're on a mission from God. And so (laughs) we work so hard and we work our students so hard and we, and the parents work so diligently with their children. Um, We, we scarcely have time to just relax and enjoy the truth, beauty, and goodness of that which we labor over. And so I try to have a lengthy session in the summer, Tuesdays with Tallman, and I try to have one event a year that's the equivalent of what I really enjoyed immensely in graduate school, a wine and cheese event at a professor's house where we would just swap ideas and gas, as my mentor used to say, we'd just gas a little bit and we'd um, pick each other's brains. And my book is a good little excuse to explore some ideas that most people wouldn't normally get into. And I find that a lot of parents are interested in rhetoric and dialectic and they want to know more about it, but it's quite intimidating for some reason. It's a mystery to me, actually. And I hope that it's been demystified in your eyes as we've done these podcasts too, Jocelyn, that um, it's, it's really based on how human beings reason, how they try to persuade one another and just our everyday interactions 
are really the basis of understanding rhetoric and how rhetoric works and why it's important to human beings in a free society, especially. Dr. Jim Tolman teaches rhetoric for Wittenberg Academy and is the author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. Dr. Tolman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.